welcome into the new and improved Sharpshooters podcast. I'm David Schuster, and he is Mr. Mark Schanowski. And though it's not true that we helped James Naismith with the peach basket and the invention of the game of basketball, we do have a vast amount of experience covering the sport over all these years, and we're happy to bring our knowledge to the sport to you fans. And then, of course, uh, specifically, that means the Chicago Bulls. Um, and we want to bring all this on a continuing basis to all the hoop junkies of which Mark and I, of course, are. And we'll give you a brief bio of ourselves. And Mark, why don't you do uh, the leadoff right there? Yeah, it was funny watching the uh, Brooklyn Nets game yesterday. They were playing on the old-fashioned court with the old baby blue tie-dye uniforms. And it kind of brought back a story of when I was first covering the Bulls back in the 1990-91 season. I remember I was assigned to cover what looked like a meaningless game against the then New Jersey Nets. And Michael Jordan, I'm sure you remember this, made that double-clutch spinning reverse layup off the glass that anytime you uh, – Click on YouTube to see Michael Jordan highlights from some of his greatest plays. That's on there. He blew by Drazen Petrovic, corkscrewed around a couple of people, and made a, a reverse layup. And it was my first year on the beat, and I remember thinking, this is going to be pretty cool covering that Jordan guy. You know, I mean, I started in Chicago right after he had that 69-point explosion against the Cavs at the old Richfield Coliseum. And then I was along for the playoff run where they lost in seven games to the Pistons in the Eastern Conference Final. And I remember that I was working for the ABC affiliate in Chicago, and they sent me as the second reporter to cover the game at the, at the new Palace of Auburn Hills with the instructions that if they won, I was going to head on to Portland and do some advancing of the NBA Finals. Well, of course, that turned out to be the infamous Scottie Pippen migraine game, and what turned out to be a basketball story became a whole lot more with people wondering about what was going on with Scottie, questioning you know, his courage and his toughness, and that was kind of my introduction to what it was going to be like being a Bulls reporter. And it, it never really got boring after that. All right. Well, let me pick up the ball, pun intended, here and, and let you know that I think I came out of my mother's womb loving the game of basketball. So I've always been a gym rat and, and a basketball junkie. And, and I played incessantly growing up. Unfortunately, I topped out at five foot eight inches. I probably even shrunk a little bit since then. So, you know, my basketball future sort of ended uh, as soon as I got into high school. But as far as my broadcasting career, I actually predate the Jordan years, which is sort of scary. Um, when I first came in, which is the late 70s, um, I'm going to throw some names. And Mark, you'll, of course, know these. The Bulls center back then was Dave Corzine. Yeah. And some of the bigger names were Reggie Theus, who was, I really loved Reggie Theus for a, for a lot of reasons. David Greenwood was part of there. Orlando Woolridge uh, was part of there. Quinton Daly, for better and for worse, mostly worse. He was part of the Bulls way back then. So I, I really came in before Michael Jordan even came in. The Bulls were pretty bad back in those days. And there was only two to 3,000 fans at the old Chicago Stadium. And, and literally, you could walk up at the last minute and buy a ticket and sit anywhere you want. But then Michael came in 1983, and it wasn't that long before things changed. Now, it, it wasn't long for us in the media, and we knew who Michael Jordan was. We saw him at North Carolina with the Olympics and all that kind of stuff. But I do remember the very first game that I said, oh, my God, we're witnessing, as as Larry Bird said, uh, God in, in basketball. Yeah. And, you know, he, he somebody – well, he was going down the lane. I want to, I want to say Artis Gilmore was um, covering the lane, and Artis Gilmore was a legit 7-2. And Gilmore went up to block his shot, and his hand was about a foot over the rim. But Michael went a foot and a half or two feet over him, and he dunked. And, and from that moment on, we were just witnessing a phenomenon that 
is second to none in, in my history. And someday when I'm in the nursing home and babbling about that, I knew Michael Jordan and the guy will say, get this guy some meds. No, the reality <laughs> was that I saw Michael Jordan. And then it wasn't much longer down the road that first it was Scottie Pippen and, and Horace Grant who joined the Bulls. Um, and they didn't win. They went through all those tough years against the Pistons. And those were obviously a story unto themselves. But they got over the hump, obviously. They started winning championships. It was the greatest thing that I've ever been part of, to be honest with you. Um, then Michael went away for all the reasons that he stated at the time, whether they were true or not. But then he came back, you know, and the second uh, second trilogy started and Dennis Rodman was part of that. And my God, Mark, you know about this. That was the sideshow of all sideshows. And then ultimately they they disbanded them for, for a litany of reasons. Um, and then they started the rebuild and the Tim Floyd era was God awful. It was like going from the penthouse to the outhouse. Um, and then they started getting better again when Derek Rose became part of the whole thing. And he was just a marvelous, marvelous talent, a local kid on top of it, as you know, Mark. Uh, unfortunately, he had the knee injury and that really brought his career not to a complete end, but it certainly changed the projection of what he was going to be. And now they're back in a rebuild, and that's where we're at right now. So um, we're excited talking about this. We're going to have guests periodically, which I think is great. You and I have a lot of connections into the sport, and you and I have been doing the sharpshooters anyway, but this is the new and improved uh, version of it, and we're excited to bring this to the fans. Yeah, we're really happy to be with the Basketball Podcast Network, and it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to be able to reach uh, listeners not only in the Chicago area now, but throughout the country because the Bulls are a worldwide brand and and who knows we might have some people from Europe and, and other far distant lands who check us out here on the Basketball Podcast Network and you know when you think back with the Derrick Rose era the Bulls winning six championships with Jordan can you imagine in the free agency summer of 2010 they were pretty close to getting LeBron and Dwayne Wade that might have been another five or six championships so we've been lucky but we could have been even luckier and now as you mentioned we're going to see what uh, Arturis Karnishevis and, and Billy Donovan can do in trying to bring winning basketball back to Chicago. All right, so let's talk about the current version yeah. of the Bulls. And, and as we speak, today is Friday, and the Bulls are off to a 4-5 and five record. They started 0-3, and I thought, oh, my God, the roof is going to cave in even before we get too far down the road. But I have to give them some credit, Mark, and I'm sure you will as well. And a lot of it has to go to Billy Donovan. I mean, let's face it, he's the best coach the Bulls have had in a long long, long time. He's the real deal. And he's getting already the most out of this uh, roster that he has. And, and let's face it, this is a one-year thing. I, I think the roster will be vastly different even next year. And Arturis Karnishevis, who is the new architect of the Bulls, is, is basically sitting back and he's observing what he has on his roster. He'll probably trade a couple of these players, my guess is, at the trading deadline in March. And then there'll be even more changes next summer, you know, going into the next season. But for right now, um, it's really interesting what they're doing and, and they're getting a lot out of, of what they have, the most out of their talent, I guess. And they're also very, very, uh, I'm trying to pick a good word here. They fight, I guess is the best word. They're, they fight really hard. And even though when they're down in games, they fight. And, and when, you, when you're able to win on the road, like they already have, I think they're three and two on the road so far. That's a pretty good uh, uh, barometer of what this team is capable of doing. Yeah, I think the most encouraging thing right now is that we're seeing some growth in some of the young players. Kobe White, who finished last season, his rookie year very strong before the league was shut down because of the pandemic. 
he was averaging close to 25 points a game over his last 10 games or so. He was playing exceptional basketball when his rookie year got cut short. And he's come back after uh, struggling with the shot in the first couple of games. We've seen some really good signs of growth. In their most recent game, a loss to the Sacramento Kings, he had a career-high 36 points, seven assists, and zero turnovers. Now, a lot of people want to say Kobe's not a pure point guard. And to be honest, he's not. He's looking for his offense, and I think that's where he's at his best. But I think we've seen some signs of growth, and Billy Donovan is going to be really patient. He told reporters after that game against the Kings that, you know, in terms of him being a pure point guard, Kobe White, that is, it's still a work in progress. But when you have two guys who can light up the scoreboard like Kobe and Zach, you know, you've got a, you've got a creative coach like Billy Donovan who's going to adjust his system to the talent that he has on the roster. I think he can do a lot of damage with those two guards, really kind of similar to what Portland has with Lillard and McCollum. They're not at that level yet, but maybe one day they can reach that level. Yeah, there's no question that Kobe White is is an incredible talent, and he's got a long, long career in front of him, um, and likely, you know, with the Bulls going forward for many, many years. You and I have had this discussion many times, Mark. I'm I'm more of a traditionalist when it comes to my point guard, and and for instance, the other night I thought uh, against Sacramento that Ty Halliburton um, is more of a traditional point guard where he's looking to get everybody more involved first. Um, and, and then he can do his scoring. But in today's modern NBA, and the game changes, um, it's very cyclical. Today's NBA modern point guard is a guy who can score, and maybe that's what his first chore is, but he still has to have some um, ability to get everybody else involved. And Kobe White, through the first nine games of this season, I am seeing growth in him. I am seeing that he's trying to get other people involved. Uh, you know, he's working really hard on the pick and roll with Wendell Carter Jr. And unfortunately, Lowry Markkinen has not been able to play the last bunch of games here because of uh, 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 the virus protocol. But he's trying to get him involved as well. So, I mean, it's still very early. Uh, he's still in the infancy of his point guard career. But I do like what I'm seeing from Kobe White so far. Yeah, ultimately, this roster is going to look a lot different next season and the next two or three years. Arturis Karnischewicz is going to try to build this team and in his image. He spent a lot of years in Denver working under Tim Connolly, and he kind of has an idea of what he would like to have. We've heard him talk about the fact that he wants two-way players, guys who are versatile, who can play multiple positions so that you can switch out on, on a lot of pick and rolls. Because let's face it, it's a pick and roll league now. And if you can't have guys who can step out and guard players who might be a little bit shorter, a little bit quicker, you're going to get burned on those pick and rolls over and over again. We saw it in the loss to Sacramento where Wendell Carter dropped into the lane when, when it was Buddy Heald coming around the screen and Garrett Temple had to reach him behind, wound up being a four-point play, and that got the Bulls sunk. So, you know, really it's all about defending pick and roll, uh, defending the three-point line. It's a three-point shooting contest most nights in the NBA, and, and the Bulls are not the greatest team in that area, but – they have added some talent that I think is going to help them reach up to the level of other teams in today's modern NBA. And, and they need to get Lowry back on the court because he got off to a nice start. Obviously, we've had two players on the Bulls roster test positive for the virus. And Lowry, because of contact tracing, has been out for over a week now. Need to get him back out there because he is so important to this team's future. I still have a lot of hope for him. Obviously, they didn't work out an extension on his rookie deal, but I think he's a guy that... Arturis Karnischewicz and Mark Eversley would like to sign long-term and see what he can do as a 7-1 guy who can not only space the floor with his shooting, 
but also can attack the basket and be a pretty good defensive rebounder as well. Yeah, no question about it. He's got such a size uh, advantage over so many people that might be guarding him. He is a legit 7-1, and yes, he can definitely shoot from the outside, and that's you know an extra quiver uh, uh, you know in his arsenal. But I think you're 100% correct. He's able to go to the basket, and if he works even more on that game, what an incredible advantage the Bulls would have in their front court. Speaking of front court, Wendell Carter Jr., please never shoot three-pointers ever. I mean, almost never, I should say. Uh, that's just not his forte, even though they, you know they've been working on it as being part of his arsenal, but it's just not. Um, the last couple of games, he's been a double-double machine getting definitely rebounds on both the offensive and defensive end of the court, of which is that's what he's supposed to do. And I thought it was really, really an important part of his growth the other night when he got those three and then four very quick fouls. And then he did not pick up his fifth foul until very, very late in the game. And he was able to play through it. And I know the referees and, you know, in the first year or two of a, a guy's career, they're, they're going to call the ticky tack fouls on these guys. But I think Wendell Carter Jr. is learning very quickly now on the fly, how to play in today's NBA. And as long as he plays within his means, I think he's still a valuable asset. And we'll see what happens with him going forward. Yeah, I think he also is a work in progress. He missed so many games in his first two seasons because of injuries that the Bulls really didn't know exactly what kind of player he's eventually going to become. And Billy Donovan is going to give him the green light on the offensive end. He can shoot threes. He can take the mid-range jumper when he sees it. As you mentioned, the key for him is to stay out of foul trouble. I think he's kind of struggling going from the blitz coverage that Jim Boylan played last year on pick and rolls to the drop coverage that Billy Donovan wants. I think he gets kind of caught in between at times. Fouls are still an issue, but you know he's still a very young player in this league. And when you look at the Bulls roster, that's the case with most of it. You know, you got so many young players that leads to some inconsistencies. And I think the fact that you know they had a good stretch where they won four to five games is because. You got good production from some of the vets, Otto Porter Jr., Garrett Temple, Thaddeus Young finally was healthy and he played very well in his first three or four games. So I think that you know having veterans to come in off the bench to stabilize the young guys should help not only, you know, with their development, but it's going to help them from having those long dry spells. You know, we've seen in past years where there'd be eight minute stretches where they'd barely score because they couldn't run the offense. I think we're going to see less of that right now. The offense has been pretty good. It's really the defense is the issue. They're 26th in the league right now, giving up 121 points a game. And that's going to have to improve if the Bulls are going to have any chance to make a run at one of those play-in spots as we get closer to the end of the season. Yeah, and we'll talk about how all the teams in the NBA are giving up way too many points. And, and the game is almost becoming too high scoring. And I never thought I would ever say that. But we'll get to that a little bit. They're on the Bulls roster and almost nobody younger in the league than Patrick Williams, who is the Bulls' high, you know, number one draft pick. And so far... Mark, I like what I see out of this kid. First of all, he's got an NBA-ready body. He's very, very big and strong and solid throughout, and he'll only get more and more as, as he gets used to the rigors of the NBA. But he's got a nice touch. He seems to have a nice high IQ of how to play basketball. He's still reticent at times, I think, He's sort of deferring to some of the other guys on the court because he is the youngest player. And listen, that was his role at Florida State in his one year. He deferred to the older guys there as well. But I like what I see out of this kid. I mean, sometimes you just watch a player and you can just say, like I did with Halliburton the other night, this kid's got it and so does Patrick Williams. I really like what I see so far. It's going to be interesting over the course, especially of his rookie season, where fans always look at what some other rookie did and said, man, we should have taken him. And 
And after Halliburton had the big game where he kind of stuffed the stat sheet with all kinds of things, including steals and a block shot with his long arms at 6'5", 6'6", people are going, wow, he would have been perfect playing alongside Kobe and Zach. And, you know, it's going to take a few years before we really know who are the best players in this draft class. Uh, LaMelo Ball was the one who was the most heralded, but he's been kind of inconsistent. What I've seen from Patrick Williams so far is a guy who's been, you know, very patient for 19 years old, the youngest American player in the draft. And he's come out, showed a lot of poise. Uh, as you said, he's not really looking for his for his shot as much as you would see from some rookies. But, you know, he started from day one, which is quite a testament for a kid who's that young. And and I think he's a good fit with the, the players around him. Bringing Otto Porter Jr. off the bench is probably a good idea because he can score with that second unit once Lowry returns. And I think Williams is going to continue to develop. Uh, he's got the NBA body, and I think that as time goes on, Bulls fans will really like what they see from this kid. You know, it's amazing, Mark, because we've talked about the starting five, if you will, but the one player we haven't talked about is still the most you know, talented player on the Bulls. And it was really interesting when uh, Garrett Temple says he's probably the most athletic player he's ever played with. And and I think they said on the TV broadcast the other night that Garrett Temple's played with almost 120 players in his NBA career. So that's high praise. And of course, we're talking about Zach Levine. And Zach, you know, is still a scoring machine when he wants to be, when he's, when he's on his game his defense has gotten a little bit better. I think his overall game has gotten a little bit better. I don't know what his longevity is in a Bulls uniform. I think potentially down the road, if Arturis Karnishevis wants to make a big, quote-unquote, big move, that Zach Levine could be part of a trade somewhere down the road. But obviously, he's a very talented player. And while he's still in a Bulls uniform, it's still fun to watch him play. I'm a big Zach Levine fan. I have been ever since the trade. Obviously, he came over. He was still rehabbing from his ACL tear. But he's just gotten better and better every season. And he's making a conscious effort to try to adopt the things that Billy Donovan has talked to him about being a winning basketball player, making winning plays. Don't always look to see how many points you can score. Try to reduce the degree of difficulty on some of the jump shots he takes and and be a better team player. We've seen some growth on the defensive end where he's played the passing lanes. He's got a few steals. I think he's working harder to be a better on-ball defender. And listen, he averaged 25 points a game last season, and people uh, you know, around the league sometimes act like that's nothing. Uh, it's not easy to average 25 points a game in the NBA. So you know, I, I don't know about his future long-term. Obviously, he was eligible for an extension this past summer or this past offseason, I, I should say. And the Bulls, according to all reports, really didn't talk that much about trying to work out an extension with Zach. I think that with the new front office, they want to see what they get from him over the course of a full season. Maybe they can talk about that next summer. But I'm a Zach fan. I'm in his court, and and I think that that he's a guy that, that can be a part of a really good team in the future. I'm a Zach fan also. And speaking of that front office, obviously it's headed by the new uh, vice president of basketball operations, uh, and we're talking about our tourist Karnishevis. And as I said a little earlier, Mark, I think what he's doing this season, he's just sitting back and he's sort of watching and, and you know, doing his own evaluation in person of everybody that's on his roster. And that's where we get to the trading deadline. And we're getting way, way ahead of ourselves, which will be sometime in March this year. Um, but he's going to have some options. And, and guys that are coming off the bench in his second unit are veteran players who will be attractive to other teams potentially in trades, you know, especially as the season goes on and they lose players to injury or the COVID situation. But guys like Thad Young, 
even maybe a little bit less so Garrett Temple, Tomas Sadoransky when he gets back and hopefully gets back, you know, on the court from the, um, and he's had coronavirus, unfortunately, and Otto Porter Jr. with that inflated contract. Now, these are guys that are helping them win games with that second unit, with that veteran presence, like you mentioned, but also they're going to be um, attractive to other teams as trade possibilities. It's going to be interesting if the Bulls are in a position for a playoff possibility February come March, what does Karnishevis do with those veteran players who are going to be wanted by other teams? Does he trade them then, or does he try and go for a playoff spot? He's going to have some decisions down the road. Yeah, I think he has to be looking long-term, especially when he came in saying that, you know, think I was uh, brought in to uh, bring change to this organization. I don't think he's going to be wedded to anybody on the current roster outside of maybe Patrick Williams who he drafted, and possibly Kobe White, who he sees as a long-term fixture at 20 years old. But I think that you'll see those veterans moved along. I mean, you look at the NBA season right now, we're only two and a half weeks into it, and already two teams have lost very valuable point guards, Brooklyn losing Spencer Dinwiddie for the season, Orlando losing Markel Fultz, and those are two teams that have playoff aspirations. So a guy like Thomas Sadoransky may become very attractive to playoff contending teams as we go along. It seems like every team is looking for, you know, another distributor, another point guard to bring in off their bench. And because of the fact that Sato has versatility at being, you know, 6'5 or so, and, and he can play multiple positions, he could be a guy that is very attractive at the deadline because he only has a small guarantee on his contract for next season. I think that he's likely to move. I think Thaddeus Young is a good chance he could move. Otto Porter I'm not as sure about because even though it's an expiring contract, it's still a lot of money to take on, even for half a season. True. All right, let's talk about one or two more players that are on the roster. Um, I, I want to highlight Daniel Gafford, because I think right now he's such a perfect complement to Wendell Carter Jr. Normally in the NBA, you have, even if you have a young starting center, you usually have some veteran who's been around for 15 years. That's not the case with Gafford. He's only in his second season in the NBA, and his uh, future and his ceiling is still you know way above him. So I like the fact that Gafford... Um, is backing up Wendell Carter Jr. You have two, in theory, active young players who are manning that position. Sometimes I think they might be overwhelmed by the guys who are even bigger than them. For instance, they go against an Embiid or an Aiton, you know, in Phoenix. But I do like what the Bulls are doing with those both those two young centers. Yeah, I really like Gafford. I liked him at Arkansas, and I was surprised that he slipped into the middle of the second round. You know, he gives you a little bit more size than Wendell. He's probably a couple inches taller. I think he's more decisive on the offensive end in terms of catching the ball in the paint and just trying to explode to the basket and dunk everything he possibly can. I mean, his shooting range is probably about five feet and in right now, but hopefully that will expand as he gets more playing time. But I think that he's the kind of guy that gives you a big lift off the bench because he always comes in with a lot of energy, a lot of aggression. He's a good defensive rebounder. He can block shots. You'd think on paper that that should be a pretty good tandem with Carter and Gafford because they have some similarities to their game. Carter probably has more offensive potential, but Gafford can be a guy who can be a defensive presence. So, you know, it's not a bad one-two punch. The roster on paper looks looks really solid, but unfortunately you don't win games with rosters on paper. You've got to get some experience, and that's why Billy Donovan has been going to the vets like we talked about for longer stretches of time because, as we've noticed, when those guys are on the court, it seems like they're more consistent than what we've seen from the starting group.
Yeah, and, and mentioning Donovan, I think he's actually been the biggest pickup from last year to this. I mean, let's face it, from Jim Boylan to uh, Billy Donovan, that's like, you know, once again, going from the outhouse to the penthouse as far as coaches go. And it seems like he's getting, like I said earlier on, he's getting the most out of this roster to this point. And he seems to have also instilled, Mark, a confidence that these guys have. I'm not going to say just a camaraderie because I think that's more by the players, but he's instilled some kind of confidence that you can just already pick up on from even from afar. And he's also instilled a resiliency to this, to this team. There were a lot of games when the bulls and, you know, they were down big the first couple of games and, and, you know, playing at the United center in front of nobody, of course, and they fell apart, but I don't know. He's ever since those first two games, this team has been very resilient and especially on the road. I, I really like what he's doing already and again, we're doing this from afar because unfortunately we're not up close and personal, but I do like what I see so far from him. Yeah, and the fact that they rallied from a 20-point deficit to win in Portland, that's pretty remarkable. I mean, that's something we wouldn't have seen in the last few years under Fred Hoiberg and Jim Boylan. It seemed when they got behind, it was over. You know, If they were against a quality opponent like the Portland Trailblazers on the road, that game would have gotten to be a 30, 35-point blowout and you would have seen Scrubs playing the, you know, the fourth quarter. I think right now... They have shown a resiliency, a desire to to battle and not give up when things go bad because, let's face it, the first two games of the season were ugly. They got down and, you know, they got blown out twice. And Billy Donovan addressed the fact that this team, he didn't use the word soft, but he certainly suggested it, saying they don't respond very well to adversity. And he said that's something that has to improve. And then when we saw Thad Young return, we saw Garrett Temple start to play. Then all of a sudden we saw a little bit more mental toughness. And I guess it really goes to show you how important experience is in the NBA. You can't feel the roster of, you know, eight to 10 young players in your rotation, even if they're all lottery picks. We've seen that in the past with teams like the Clippers and Sacramento and Phoenix, you know, a lot of high draft picks. They don't necessarily win without that experience to guide them. Yeah. And you can't uh, under underline, uh, understate, I should say, the coach, and we talked about Billy Donovan, but his staff as well. Um, and you know, I was a big Maurice Cheeks fan yep. even before they signed him. And I, you know, I just wish that we could be there. Unfortunately, during this pandemic, it is what it is. But, you know, in the good old days, which is only a year ago now, that we would get much closer with the assistant coaches. And I would love to talk to Maurice Cheeks about so many things. He's a Chicagoan through and through anyway. But I would love to hear what his mentoring of Kobe White is specifically because I think and Maurice Cheeks I've been watching him since his high school days here in Chicago and then he played at West Texas State and I saw him play in college because I went to school downstate in southern Illinois and then of course during his NBA career and he was so integral in part of the you know some of the Sixers uh, great teams back you know when he was playing I would love to hear what his mentoring of Kobe White is because I can already see that there's some kind of effect that already from the coach to the player here. You know, and, and Billy Donovan has been very positive in his post-game and pre-game comments about everybody on the roster. But it was interesting the other night when Kobe had 36, which was a career high, he said, you know, he's great off the ball, but he said his point guard work is, is still a work in progress. So, you know, they're not going to give him a pass. You know, it's not going to be just do whatever you want with the ball and try to score as many points as you can. They want him to develop as a point guard because if this Bulls team is going to become a playoff contender and eventually a contender for, you know, something special in the Eastern Conference, they're going to need a, a high-quality elite point guard. And if Kobe White isn't that, 
Well, then they're going to have to either through free agency or the draft find a point guard, and that would most likely mean that, that Zach Levine would be moved on in a trade. So Maurice Cheeks is was one of the best point guards that we've seen in the modern game. He's a Hall of Famer. He played with those great Philadelphia teams, as you mentioned, with Dr. J and Andrew Toney and Moses Malone. Uh, that you know that that 83 championship teams was one of the most impressive in NBA history. So he knows what it means to be a point guard setting up fantastic players at all different levels of the court. And I think those are the kind of skills he wants to impart to Kobe White. He also needs to get him to improve on his defense because as we saw in the game against Sacramento, even though they both scored over 30, they were turnstiles on the other end and that yeah. can't continue. Yeah, I would love to talk to Cheeks if for no other reason, just to talk about those teams that he played with in yeah. the 80s, because you talk about a cast of characters that was on those 80 teams, uh, those 80s teams in Philadelphia, though that would be off the charts. All right, as I mentioned, um, we're, we're going to get some periodic guests, whether writers or maybe even a player here and there, or certainly some people on the periphery, management people. We're going to do that. We might talk about some other things here on, on our Sharpshooters uh, podcast that are Chicago-centric, and right. we're going to have a segment that I'll get to in just a little bit here, Mark, where you and I, because we've been doing this for so long covering the Bulls, that we have so many stories going back in time. So we're going to do that as the last part of our podcast uh, each and every time that we do a podcast. But I want to talk a little bit about the league also. And as I mentioned earlier, the games are really high scoring so far. I mean, we're seeing 80-point first halves. We're seeing... 40-point quarters on a consistent basis. And, and don't get me wrong, I love fast-break basketball, but at times it almost feels like a pinball machine on tilt. And, and even for me, and I love high scoring, sometimes it's almost too high scoring, and I don't know how you feel about it. Well, the scores are just crazy. I mean, there was a 145 to 141 game recently in regulation. And normally you'd think that must have been a double or triple overtime game. No one's playing any defense. And my theory on that is, I think the fact that there's no fans in the stands, you know, the fans play a role in motivating the players, but they also play a role in holding them accountable. You know, if you fall behind by 20, you start hearing the boos. And if you're, <laughs> you know, if you're an athlete, whether it's high school, college, or pro, if you're hearing boos, that's going to motivate you to dig down a little bit deeper on the defensive end, try to shut down the guy in front of you, and maybe just play a little bit harder. And, and I think the fact that those arenas are empty now and these are – you know, one of 72 games, I think it's kind of easy to say, well, we'll just see who can score the most points. And if we lose this game, so what? It's not going to be a big deal. I think when they had the bubble environment, those were important games initially for seeding purposes, and then they were right into the playoffs. Now it's the long slog of a regular season. And I think guys just aren't that motivated without the fans to really dig in on the defensive end. Yeah, and you know, I don't know if it's in the arena because I actually have not gone to an NBA game so far. I've gone, I've gone to football games. I've gone to baseball games without the fans, but I haven't gone to an NBA game just yet. I will. And, you know, on TV, they pipe in, you know, the crowd cheering. I don't know if they do that in the arenas, but if they get down 20 points in front of the, in front of the home crowd or the lack of home crowd, it, they should pipe in some booing. Because that maybe that would motivate uh, some of the um, the players on the court. Um, let's go around some of the other things, uh, and we're we're going to highlight at least initially here on this first podcast some of the Bulls or former Bulls people around the league. And the very first one that comes to mind, and right now he's the odds-on favorite for being Coach of the Year through only eight games. That's Tom Thibodeau. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't think that New York Nick team would win five games all season. They're already off to a five and three start. Once again, Tom Thibodeau 
is getting the most out of such a collection of ragtag players. I don't know how he's doing it. Yeah, and he's really struggling trying to adjust to having to wear the face covering during the game because, <laughs> you know, he was infamous for his yelling, ice, ice, you know, and, and all kinds of uh, ex- expletives that you heard. Of course, he worked with the visiting TV right at courtside. Oh, my God. And, and you know, Tibbs was famous for some of this uh, string of expletives that he could put together. But now, you know, he's wearing the face covering and he's still bellowing out instructions. But he's, as you mentioned, the roster is kind of a ragtag group, but – He's getting the most of it. The Knicks off to a five and three start. They just recently brought back our old buddy Taj Gibson, who hopefully will solidify their front court. And you know, I don't know if the Knicks can stay in the playoff hunt the entire season, but Tibbs is going to get every last ounce of potential out of that group. We're already seeing that Julius Randle and RJ Barrett lead the league in minutes played, which is not a stat that will surprise any Bulls fans. But you know, hopefully Tibbs can have some success there because I think Jimmy Butler kind of kind of did him dirty in Minnesota. You know, they worked that trade out. Jimmy helped him get to the playoffs in Tibbs' first season, but then, or in his second season, but then he kind of went AWOL on him, demanded a trade. He eventually went to Philly, and and Tibbs was done there. So uh, I, I would like to see him have success because even though he's kind of a 24-7 basketball guy and kind of can rub people the wrong way at times, I really appreciate his passion, and he's one heck of a basketball mind. Yeah, he's an absolute basketball lifer who who, who just, you know, he, he will go back even after a game. I know because I've seen this. He'll go back into his little coach's office, and he'll watch not only his game backwards and forwards, the one that they just played. He'll go watch two or three other NBA games and probably get two or three hours of sleep and be right back at it the next day. I mean, he is just such an advocate of the game of basketball. And, you know, as a basketball junkie myself, I do appreciate that. The only thing that he had the same passion for was food. (laughs) I can tell that (laughs) because, man, I'll tell you what, that guy would go to every restaurant in the city, you know, uh, and I'm sure now being in New York, oh, my God. I mean, he's got – and, he, you know, listen, he was an assistant coach in New York previous anyway, so he knows all the restaurants in New York. But that's a big passion of his also. You mentioned Taj Gibson. I'm so happy that this guy is back in the league. I didn't think that this season would start without Taj Gibson because he's such a he's such a veteran presence and a good guy in every locker room that he's ever been in. And of course, he can still help you a little bit as well. So I'm really happy. He's one of my favorite players and one of the most honest players in any sport. And I've dealt with a lot of athletes and a lot of sports over the years. Yeah, Taj is one of my favorites because not only was he a great player, you know, Stacy King always talks about the hard hat and lunch pail that he came in with that uh, attitude to do whatever the team needs to help them win. But he was so refreshingly honest in his dealings with us in the media. You know, he would tell it like it is and was, and I always appreciate that because, you know, you and I are veterans in the business. We've heard a million-plus cliches over the years, but when you you get a guy like Taj or Joakim Noah – who would give you some real talk about, you know, when you ask him a question, you get a real answer. We, we always appreciate that. 100%. I used to do speaking engagements with Todd Gibson when I was working at the radio station. And uh, it, it was just fun being out with him outside the basketball arena. We were talking basketball, of course, and whether a bar or restaurant or whatever. I just one of my favorite guys of all time. I want to talk about one other former Bulls player. And you mentioned that a couple of point guards have gone down to injury. And I think it's fait complete that at some juncture, the trading deadline, maybe earlier, that Derrick Rose is in the last part of his 
two-year contract with the Pistons, I think he ends up, and let's face it, the Pistons are going nowhere this year or, or maybe the next few years, that he's going to be traded to some uh, contender. I think that would be a great pickup for any contender. You know, you looked at teams around the league. Everyone could use a player like Derrick Rose who can come off the bench in limited minutes and really inject some life into your offense. You know, if you use Derrick the right way, as we've seen him coming off the bench, when Tibbs rescued him off the scrap heap in Minnesota and he had a strong finish to that season. And then, of course, he's he's been a revelation the last couple of years uh, with the numbers he's been able to put up. I think Derrick Rose could help any contending team. And if a team like uh, Philadelphia or Brooklyn is looking to solidify their bench in the second half of the season or one of the L.A. teams has an injury and wants to bring him in, he'd be great anywhere. As long as you use him wisely, make sure that you, you control his minutes. I think he'd be a great addition. And, you know, we, we've got to know Derek very well in covering the Bulls over the years. Really a great guy. He's had a lot of issues off the court. Some of him he created, some were not his fault. But I, I always root for Derek, and I, I would love to see him win a championship somewhere before he's done. 100%. And, and right now he's coming off the bench in Detroit. Killian Hayes, who was their top draft pick, you know, I haven't seen all the Pistons games and I'm not really up to date with what's going on, but I've seen a couple of games where he's 0 for 4, 0 for 5 or something. Yeah, he's hurt now. He's going to be out there. I mean, now he's hurt on top of yeah. it. And Derek is still, yeah, I noticed that, that Derek still wasn't starting even after Hayes got, came right. down with his injury. So I'm sure Derek, you know, he signed there. He had a good relationship or has a good relationship with the new Pistons owner, but I'm sure he wants to win a championship. And I think he's ready to get out of town there. And the one thing I'd like to see, too, is let him finish his career in Chicago. I don't know if there's any way that you could maybe make a, you know, a late season trade to bring him in for the final 20 games of the season. I, I think that would be fantastic. Yeah, you know, and somewhere down the road, and we talked about this when the Clippers did not uh, pick up uh, Joakim Noah's uh, contract or whatever, and they waived him, and, and Joe's NBA career is over. But what the Bulls should do because of so many positive things that he did for this city and the franchise, they should sign Joakim Noah to a one-day contract and at least let him retire as a bull. And somehow, some way, I hope they do something along those same lines, whether now or somewhere much further down the road with Derrick Rose. Right, and they did that for Luol Deng. They brought him back for the one-day uh, ceremony where he retired officially as a bull. I'm sure they'll do that for Joakim Noah, but of course, they want to wait till there's a full house at the United Center to give uh, Joe the salute that he deserves. 100%. All right. As I mentioned, Mark, uh, at the end of each one of our podcasts, we're going to go back in time. I don't know how we would want to phrase this segment, but basically it's going back in time. One of our one of our many, many, many experiences over all these years of covering the Bulls. And, and I have so many stories. So I'm going to let you lead off and, and we'll do this on a recurring basis. Well, one of my favorite people in the broadcasting profession that I got to work with was Storm and Norm Van Leer. And it was an interesting coupling when I found out that I, when I took a job at Comcast Sportsnet that I'd be doing Bulls pre and post, and my partners would be Stacy King and Norm Van Leer. <laughs> and I'm a kid who grew up in Milwaukee, and I was a fan of those great Bucks teams. Of course, they won the championship in 1971 with then Lou Alcindor, who became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And their biggest rivals, or one of their biggest rivals, was the Chicago Bulls with Storm and Norm Van Leer and Jerry Sloan. And they used to do anything in their power to take Lou Alcindor, later Kareem, off his game. They would go in the post. They would hack him. They'd punch him in the ribs. They would try to dig the ball out whenever there was a ball thrown in the post. And when I was you know, going through high school, I couldn't stand Sloan and Van Leer. And then in a TV studio, I wind up being paired with Norm. Of course, I had... I had 
had some brief encounters with him in the media in the past, but working with him on a daily basis, I just found out that Norm was one of the biggest sweethearts you would ever want to run into, a generous soul, a fun-loving guy. Every day in the studio with Norm was an absolute treasure. He left us way too early, and it just, just was one of the strangest things in my broadcasting career that a guy that I reviled as a player became someone I was able to call a friend and who I just loved dearly. Yeah, let me just let me add on to talking about Norm just for a second. And and his he had so many nicknames for people. Right. He used to call me point guard, which I thought was <laughs> a compliment because I, you know, only five foot seven, five foot eight, whatever I am. And I used to just love talking about point guards. So he always called me point guard, but he was as honest as the day was long, sometimes too honest for his own good, but still as honest as they ever have come. And he had such a passion for basketball and a passion for people. Uh, almost, uh, you know, equally. And he also, uh, and I, I don't know if you ever went over to his place, Mark, he had such a record collection, yes. a vast record collection <laughs> that, and, and it, it, it covered all different genres of music. I mean, Norm was one of the all-time favorite people. And the day, unfortunately, when he passed away on the same day as Johnny Red Kerr, ironically, right. I mean, one of the saddest days in certainly Bulls and, and Chicago sports history, but just a sad day in general because two wonderful people, Norm included, unfortunately left us way too soon. Um, one, I'm going to go way, way, way back in time with my first memory. Maybe I'll go chronologically as I do this over the span of weeks. And this is almost when I first started covering the Bulls in 1979. And they used to practice at the old Angel Guardian on the northwest side of the city. And this yep. place was an absolute dump. Um, it was basically an orphanage. I don't even know if it's still there. And they had a basketball court. And that's where the Bulls could find a place to practice. And there was no hot water. These, the players used to always cry about that. There was no hot water in the showers. And they would actually go take a shower at home. they just leave after practice. But the first coach that I ever dealt with back in those Angel Guardian days and, and at the uh, Chicago Stadium was Jerry Sloan, who partnered up, of course, with Norm Van Leer in one of the all-time backcourts. And, and he was such a hero to me growing up. I mean, I love those old Bulls teams. You may have hated them, Mark, but I <laughs> love those teams. They introduced me to pro basketball, Chet Walker and Bob Love and, and, and Borwinkle and all those other guys. And Jerry Sloan was the head coach way back when. And Jerry Sloan, another guy as honest as the day is long, yeah. and a man's man. I mean, that's the best way I can describe Jerry Sloan. God rest his soul. He passed away uh, over the last couple of years. And it was so refreshing to be, and I was in awe. I'm not going to lie. I was in awe of the guy. But what he would do with us young reporters, and we were sort of a group of young reporters, he would take us into the stands after practice and these old wooden bleachers at the old Angel Guardian. And he would just talk to us, certainly about basketball. But, you know, he also came from Southern Illinois. He went to school at McLeansboro. That was his hometown. And I went to school, uh, college at, in Carbondale, which is also down in South, uh, Southern Illinois. And we would talk about that. And, you know, he was, he was such a good guy. And I loved being around him. And that was my first coach. Then it came Stan Albeck and, and, uh, and uh, Rod Thorne and some other guys. But Jerry Sloan was the first guy, and I was just in absolute awe of him. And, and that's a memory that I'll never, ever forget. And every time he came to town later on after he was fired by the Bulls and he became the head coach of the Utah Jazz, just to see him, there was a sparkle in his eye coming back to Chicago. Um, and it was a sparkle in my eye just being part of him. So it was always fun just to 
be part of Jerry Sloan's circle, if you will. Yeah, and he wasn't able to get a championship because of those great Bulls teams, the Bulls beating him in back-to-back finals. And, you know, Jerry would get up on the podium, and, and he was always brutally honest about his team and what was going on in the series. And that was something, as we mentioned, that we really welcomed as reporters. And he was a great player. He and Norm, as you mentioned, the, the most formidable backcourt defensively we might have seen in the history of the league. You know, they didn't give an inch. And unfortunately, that team was never able to get to the promised land either. So, you know, Jerry didn't get a chance to get that championship, nor did Norm. But they, they created lifetime memories for Bulls fans everywhere. I'm going to throw one more memory. I'm doing a two-for-one here because you've brought up Norm. And this is back in the playing days, of course. And I was just a fan back then. But it was Norm's tail end of career with the Bulls. And I think they were playing Portland. Uh, I think Sidney Wicks was on Portland. Maybe he was on Detroit. I don't. I can't remember what team he was on at that juncture. And I don't know. Norm just, you know, Norm was a red ass, of course. Uh, and Norm went after Sidney Wicks. And Sidney Wicks was a tough dude. But Norm would have taken him. I'm positive of that. And Norm was so angry with him. And we're sitting up in the second balcony or something like that. Norm picked up a chair. And Norm was chasing Sidney Wicks on the court. It was like something out of wrestling where he was going to you know, hit him over the head with a chair or something like that. Norm Van Leer, oh, my God. you know, I'll never write that book, but if I ever did, he would definitely be part of that. There's no question about it. I remember at the end of his career, uh, Don Nelson picked him up, and, and Norm had very little left at that point. And, and Nellie, who was always uh, willing to take any chances as a coach, threw him out there for some important minutes at, at times. And, and Norm, one game he got in foul trouble where he was trying to go for steals. He kept reaching in. He kept getting whistled. And he got so mad at the referee that, like, on five straight possessions, he played defense with his hands locked behind his back so he wouldn't get called for fouls. And he still was able to stay in front of his guy. <laughs> Nelly loved him, but eventually he got taken out of the rotation because they had some pretty good teams there in the early 80s. But, but Norm was a battler, and he would never give an inch no matter how tall or how powerful the opposing guy might be. Yeah, he and Jerry Sloan were probably the most ferocious duo backcourts defensively of all time. And I remember reading stories, whether it was Earl Monroe or or Walt Frazier, and, and they said they hated playing the Bulls back in those yeah. days because afterwards they would be black and blue when they basically beaten up, which is just sort of comical to hear. Hey, Mark, this has been fun as always. I love talking basketball with you, and I love doing this Sharpshooters podcast, and we'll do this for the fans for as long as they want to hear from us. Yeah, we want to let everybody know uh, we're going to be trying to publicize this as much as we can. We're part of the new Basketball Podcast Network. Uh, The Twitter handle is at HoopsPodNet, and they're going to have every city covered with specially designed podcasts designed to reach that fan base, and it's going to be a great new project. We're happy to be a part of it, and hopefully we can expand and grow this so Bulls fans all over the country can get the latest on their favorite team. All right. So, Mark, for now, that's a that's a, a wrap. But we'll do this again real soon. And I will talk to you very shortly myself. All right, David. Sounds good. Take care, everybody.